Hey guys, it's Lisa Lillian, also known as Hungry Girl here just to let you know, if you are listening to this and you don't currently subscribe to this podcast, you should. So wherever you're listening from, click subscribe. And also, if you don't get our daily emails, that's a big mistake. So go to hungry-girl.com to sign up for our free daily emails. And if you're bored every other Thursday night, I have a live show on Amazon. So you can go to hungry-girl.com slash Amazon live. Thanks. Hope you love the episode. Hey there, it's me, Lisa Lillian, also known as Hungry Girl. Very excited for today's episode of True the Right Thing. It is a one-on-one interview with my personal friend, very close friend, who is also a health journalist, author of four books on health and wellness, and he also has a PhD in public health. He is super impressive. His name is Dr. Robert J. Davis. Now, if that name sounds familiar, some of you might remember him because he joined us on the Hungry Girl Cruise. Uh, a couple of years back and everybody loved him. And occasionally he comes on these podcasts. And what I love about Robert is that he breaks it down. He is also known as the healthy skeptic. And what he does is he will help us distinguish between truth and lies in health and wellness. And his latest book is called Supersize Lies. And the tagline of that book is how myths about weight loss are keeping us fat and the truth about what really works. It is a great book. It was the winner of a 2022 Best Book Awards, Nutrition and Fitness category. So it's a good book. I love it. I love how easy it is to read. He is such a a, a clever writer and everything is just so easy to digest, no pun intended. And he's also fun to talk to. So stick around, listen to the whole podcast. He is breaking down everything. There's a lot of stuff we'll be discussing today. And if you stay till the end, you're going to find a chance to win a copy of his book. So don't stop midway because I want you to win a copy. All right, thanks. Let's jump right in. Well, welcome, Robert. Thank you, Lisa. Great to be with you. Great to have you. Should I call you Robert or Dr. Davis? Robert is fine. Okay. Okay. We know we go way back. Um, But for those of you who don't know exactly who you are, why don't you give like the, I don't want to say the elevator pitch. How about a a broken elevator pitch? Broken elevator. Okay. I like that. I like that. So you could take a little longer to give people the background on you and all that you do. Well, I am a health journalist by profession. I've spent many years uh, writing about health issues and also producing video content. Also have a background in public health, a PhD, master's degree in epidemiology. So uh, what I do is to try to look at the research using the training I have to actually look at the studies to help people understand what's true, what's not true, what's believable, what's not believable. Because as we know, when it comes to so many things around weight loss and diet and nutrition and fitness and wellness, there's so much misinformation, so much hype, so much confusing information, so much clutter. So I try to help people um, figure out really what the science actually shows so they can make more informed decisions about what's best for them. And you are the healthy skeptic. That, I am, uh, indeed. I, it's a good name. It's not a misnomer. And you have a couple of books. Well, you have four books in total. And why don't you just like run down what they are and tell us a little bit about your latest book? Sure. My latest book is called Super Size Lies. And what I do in that book is to look at all kinds of claims around weight loss. 
um, and uh, try to, look, again, look at the science behind those claims and help people figure out which ones are true. I also look at what actually works, what the science shows actually works uh, in terms of all kinds of different approaches that people take uh, to help them lose weight. We know that there's no one size fits all, obviously, but I try to help people guide people toward what might be appropriate and helpful to them. That's my most recent book, as I said. Before that, I wrote a book called Fitter Faster, which looks at the science of exercise, helping people figure out, again, what's true and what's not about exercise and actually presenting a plan, an exercise plan uh, that people can follow regardless of their fitness level, regardless of their experience uh, with exercise to help people overcome the barriers that so many of us have when it comes to exercise. Also, we've written a book called uh, Coffee is Good for You, which looks at all kinds of different claims, everything from red meat to red wine uh, regarding nutrition and food and helping people sort through in what I hope is an entertaining way and helpful way to figure out which claims are, are believable and which are not. And then my first book called The Healthy Skeptic, where my name came from, looks at a number of different claims around health and wellness and looks at the story behind the stories to help people understand where this information comes from and how and why it's often distorted, uh, whether it's money or agendas or other issues that result in skewed uh, advice that we get and how to sort through all of this advice. Well, your books are amazing. I will say this. I mean, you, the way you speak, you speak matter of factly about everything in a way that everybody understands it. But the writing in your book is very, very easy to digest, no pun intended, and easy to read and easy to understand and yet entertaining, which is so hard to do in a lot of the topics that you, you know, broach upon. Because sometimes it's like, complicated. And your whole thing is that you break it down and how you break it down is just easy to understand for anyone. So Thank I think you. that's why all of your books resonate so well with our audience. So the latest book is specifically about weight loss. And uh, it's interesting because weight loss has been such a huge part of our society for as long as I can remember, except in the past couple of years, I think the tides have turned and I'd love to first talk before, you know, I was thinking about getting into this topic after, but I really want to jump in first with this topic. The idea that, um, you know, I understand body positivity and we can get into that, but also healthy at any size, people just accepting obesity or the fact that they are, you know, not at a healthy weight and how that really does affect people. And First, I want to ask why you think it is. Why do you think people think that's okay now? And then let's talk a little bit about whether or not you agree with that. Sure. Well, first of all, I will say that the impetus behind things like health at every size or body positivity is good in the sense that we all know the dangers and the harms of diet culture, both physical and emotional. When people go on diets, they lose weight, they regain weight. They go on another diet, lose weight, gain weight, go through this weight cycling. And we know that that is very damaging emotionally and physically. I know, I'm sure there are many listeners who've been through this experience and have suffered through this and the, the damage it causes um, in so many different ways. And so I think the impetus behind this is to not only help people break free of that mentality and that cycle, um, but also feel better about themselves so they don't judge themselves based on their weight. So that there's not this sense or try to lessen this sense of internalized stigma about weight and self-blame 
uh, over it's, you know, that it's my fault. I can't succeed on these diets when really the problem is the diets themselves. So in that sense, I think this move toward body positivity and health at every size is a good thing. The problem as I see it though, is as you say, when body positivity movement and others say that there is no link between obesity and health risks, when studies come out showing some kind of increased risk, they'll say, they'll deny the science and say, it's not true. Or they will say that those who are bringing this up are fat shaming and accuse those who even bring up the issue of the risks of obesity as fat shaming and try to squelch any kind of conversation. I think when that happens, it does a terrible disservice to everybody because these risks are very real and that is undeniable. The science is undeniable that obesity and excess weight contributes to a number of health conditions including type 2 diabetes. We see there's an epidemic of type 2 diabetes because of increasing rates of obesity. Heart disease, strokes, certain cancers, reproductive issues, the list goes on and on and on. And most Why recently- are people in denial about it? Well, most recently I was going to say we see COVID-19. That's mm-hmm. been a very important factor in COVID-19 hospitalizations and deaths, the relatively high obesity rate. This is well documented that people who are obese have worse outcomes. And so I think that as with many things, the pendulum has swung too far in this effort to try to deal with the very real problem of stigma and internalized stigma and societal stigma that advocates have gone too far and said, we can't even have a conversation about the risks of obesity. And I think that we need to come back to a happy medium where we acknowledge the problems of diet culture and the harms that it causes, but at the same time are honest about the harms, potential harms of obesity so that people can help, can, we can help people find a way to love yourself, to feel good about yourself regardless of your weight, but at the same time, do whatever you can to make yourself healthy and arrive at a healthy weight for you. Now, that doesn't mean you should go on a crash diet. It doesn't mean that you need to be thin, but it does mean that it, you should, we should help people find a way to be healthy and to arrive at a healthy and sustainable weight for them. Yeah. And I don't know why it's so black and white. Why can't it be both things? And I think that the happier people are and the more they accept the way they look, even if they are a little bit overweight, that'll put them in a better frame of mind to actually think about their health and achieving a healthy weight. But it's just frustrating to me that people, you know, maybe it's our culture, it's our country, the way society is like, this is good. This is bad. There's no gray area. And I, I do agree that it's doing a disservice to people and their health. Um, and I don't know how we can change that. How do we do that, Robert? Can, can we do that together? <laughs> well, I think when we talk about this issue, we need to always acknowledge what the advocates of body positivity are saying, which is that, yes, we understand that diet culture and this obsession with weight loss the damage it can have and to be sympathetic and understanding. And I think it's important to do that, but then to transition into, but at the same time, while we understand that, we also want to talk about in an honest way about the risks of obesity and what people can do in a way that's going to allow them to maintain a positive body image. Mm -hmm. And I do think that it's easier for people who have failed over and over or who yo-yo up and down to just say, well, it doesn't matter. I love myself this way and, you know, I can be healthy at any size when they, they don't want to really face the facts, but the facts are the facts. And getting down to business, because 
if there's any audience out there that still does care about losing weight, it's probably the hungry girl audience. They still right. really do want to lose weight on some level. Otherwise, they probably wouldn't be listening to the podcast and reading you know, my daily emails and the books. So um, getting right down to it, what do you think is the biggest problem with our society and why people can't achieve and maintain healthy weights? Well, I think that's obviously a very complicated issue, and there's so many factors that are involved. Um, one certainly is the, just the ubiquity of food in our society. There is food tempting us everywhere we go, whether you go to the office, whether you go to the airport, whether you go to Home Depot, wherever you go, there's food. And certainly we have large portions. And so if you look at eating habits and food availability now versus say 50 years ago, there's an enormous difference. So I think just the availability of food is a big issue. And we all know that if, if, when we're presented with food, many of us are just going to simply eat more. If the portions are larger or there's more food available, we're going to eat more. And so I, think I think that's an American thing, by the way. Yeah. Because I, when I visit, I've been in some European countries and there's like no food. Like, I mean, uh, like there, if when I was in France, it's like we wanted a snack. There was not a snack to be had. You could walk the town. If you want a snack, you have to sit at a beautiful cafe, make a commitment. You have to order, you know, your lunch, you can't just walk and buy a snack. And here, everything we do revolves around food. And you're right, we're hit over the head with food wherever we turn. Yeah. And it is hard to resist. It's not our fault. It's right. It's hard to resist. Right. It's hard to resist. And the, the, the second thing I would say is it's the types of food. The fact that we have so many what are now being termed ultra processed foods, foods that we all eat because we're, we have busy lives and these foods are available and they're easy and they're inexpensive. But things like packaged, you know, packaged foods, frozen pizza, uh, fast food, all the rest, foods that we all know aren't great for us, but that are, as the experts say, highly palatable, meaning that they are, you're e they're easy to eat and they go down quickly and yet they often leave us even hungrier. And mm -hmm. so in we have increasing evidence that these foods are contributing to the obesity epidemic by, by in various ways, making us eat more and uh, and, and, and keeping they're, they're, us hungry, right? And keeping us hungry so that we keep eating more. And they're actually, they're designed to do exactly that. Exactly that. And that's the scary part. So I want to talk a little bit about that because I always said, and I still to this day say, if there was just like a safe way to curb your appetite, whoever invented that would make bazillions of dollars. And boy, it would help a lot of people because people are eating a lot of the time because they are hungry. And I know that there are some drugs now that have been sort of, um, highly used by people with diabetes like Ozempic. And the reason why people are losing weight as a side effect is because it's curbing their appetite. I'm assuming that's what it is. It's not speeding right. up metabolism. Correct. So how do you feel about that and the idea of using drugs like that to curb your appetite? For people who have a lot of weight to lose, that is people who are classified as obese or people who are classified as overweight and have a weight-related condition like diabetes, I think for certain people, these drugs can be very helpful. For people who've tried and failed through with different diets and struggled and they're facing health risks particularly, I think that these drugs can be a, an important adjunct. And some, the one you just described is Ozempic, which is actually a diabetes drug. There's actually a weight loss version of that same drug at only at a higher dose. It's called Wegovi that was introduced onto the market a few years ago. Wait, so they, they're a similar drug? They're the same exact molecule. Mm -hmm. uh, they both work the same way. It's just that Wegovi is a higher dose of the same medication. So what if you have diabetes and you use the Wegovi? 
um, you that would be too high a dose. You want to use Ozempic for the do- doctor would prescribe right. Ozempic. Now, it's also true, though, that the lower dose, Ozempic, can actually result in weight loss. Not as much as Wegovy, but using Ozempic can actually result in some weight loss. Wegovy can result in significant weight loss, according to the studies, as much as 15% of people's body weight is lost. That's a lot. Is it because it makes them less hungry and they're eating less? Exactly. It, it mimics a hormone that tells the brain that we're, we're full. Um, is it called dangerous? GLP-1. Um, so far in studies, the main issues, and again, we've only, it's only been studied about 16 months in the trials and the, that were done for it. So based on those trials, it can cause side effects like nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, which is, you know, nothing, stop you to from eating. Taken, right, which is nothing to be taken lightly. So that it does cause side effects. And that is enough for some people to stop the drug and not be able to take it. But for people who can tolerate the drug, um, it's generally found to be safe. Now that said, as I said, it's only been tested 16 months. These are drugs that you need to stay on presumably for your entire life because if you go off the drug, you gain the weight back. And right now we don't know if there are any long-term effects because it hasn't been around that long. Um, so when people take this, they have to consider that, that we don't know if there are risks. And I have to say, there's a long history of weight loss drugs like this that came out that were you know, hailed as the next greatest thing with weight loss that did result in weight loss, but only to be found later to cause serious side effects. There's a whole, the, the highway is littered with these drugs over the last 100, 100 years. Now, I'm not saying that Wegovy will be the same thing. It may turn out, in fact, to be safe in the long run. But the truth is we don't know at the moment whether it's safe long term. And so when people take this drug, they have to balance, okay, I know that this could be helpful to me and I, I'm facing health risk potentially from being obese or overweight. So this drug could potentially be very beneficial. But at the same time, there are potentially unknown risks from taking this drug over the long run. Right. And I don't want to gloss over something you said that I think is really important. It's that when you stop, they're going to be hungry again. They've learned nothing about how to eat, you know, in a healthy way and maintain weight. It's just once you're hungry, they're going to start their old habits and probably gain the weight back. So like for me, how I have like tricked myself, I like to eat a lot of like high water volume foods. Like I'll eat a lot of vegetables. I'll eat a lot of things that are lower in calories so I can eat more of it. And I always say that's to me what like you have to do long-term because any quick fix could work. But the minute you stop, if you don't figure it out for yourself, you're just going to be back at square one. And I think that you were saying the same thing because it's like people go into these yo-yo modes and they're not really solving a problem. They're just like, there's like a Band-Aid fix and then the Band-Aid's gone. I think that's a very important point. And to be fair, the makers of the drug say that it can't be a standalone fix, that people have to also focus on lifestyle measures like changing their diet and exercise. But I think that sometimes that doesn't happen. And so people will just rely on the drug. And so as you say, it may be that if they go off the drug, they're back at square one and those behaviors are still in place. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what about probiotics? So I hear a lot about probiotics, prebiotics. I don't exactly know what they are. People say they're really good for digestion. Sometimes I take them. Sometimes I don't. I I don't know. I don't know if it's good, if it's bad, if it helps with weight loss, weight maintenance. What do you know about probiotics? Well, what I can tell you is, first of all, what they are. Probiotics are essentially good bacteria, beneficial bacteria and other microorganisms. Um, it sounds disgusting in a way because you're eating live organisms. You're le- eating live microorganisms. 
And the idea behind that is that there's a mix of microbes in our gut. As sometimes you hear about the microbiome, you know, and there's a lot about the microbiome now and more and more studies around that. But regarding weight loss, uh, what the studies show or in weight, uh, in weight control is that people who are lean have a different mix of microbes in their gut than people who are heavy. And so the idea behind using probiotics is that if you take these live microorganisms, these live bacteria, these good bacteria, it can actually change the mix of microbes in your gut and promote uh, weight loss. So that's the theory behind it. All right. I have a question. So if people that are thin have a different mix, is it because they were born that way and this is naturally thin people? Or once you lose the weight, the mix of bacteria changes? That's unclear. That's still being studied. But we do know that from animal studies, it can change because they've actually done studies in uh, rodents where they actually took the microbiome of an obese mouse and put it into a lean mouse and that lean mouse becomes obese. And so, uh, and that's actually been done in people as well, sort of accidentally when they were doing uh, transplants in people, fecal transplants for other reasons. So the point is that it can change, but why it happens initially is not clear. There's some indication it may have something to do with diet because we know that diet can actually, the food you eat can actually affect your microbiome. So we know that eating a lot of fiber, for example, can promote the growth of these beneficial bacteria that are more conducive to a lower weight. Again, a lot of this is still in its infancy, um, so a lot is not understood, but there is increasing evidence that there is a connection here. Okay. And in general, I know there's so many different kinds of probiotics and then also prebiotics, which we didn't even get into, but how do you know, like a lot of times it'll promote on the bottle thousands of... X, Y, and Z. And you're like, do I need hundreds? Do I need thousands? What do I take? Why? Uh, Forget about weight loss. Like what should the average person take or think about taking in terms of probiotics? Yeah. Well, that's why this is so confusing because there are so many different kinds of probiotics. I mean, probiotics essentially have three names. They have a first name, a middle name, and a last name. And they're various combinations of all these three names. And so the last name is often called a strain you often hear just these things described in terms of strains. And so there are many different strains of these probiotics. So what the research that does exist shows that specific strains can be helpful for specific conditions. But the point is that you need to match the right strain to know what strain and what condition you're talking about. So just going and taking probiotics to take probiotics is not going to be helpful because you may be taking the wrong, wrong probiotic or you may be taking it for something for which there's not evidence. With regard to weight loss specifically, um, there are some studies that they're preliminary and small and short term, I should say that, but they do suggest that taking certain probiotics can be helpful a bit when it comes to weight loss. And there's one in particular, um, two in particular that I think I've seen studies on, um, one called LG2055 that's been studied. I'll say that again, LG2055. That's not uh, a sexy name. <laughs> that's been studied uh, that shows some effect on weight loss. But how does anyone know? I don't know. I, it's just too complicated. Well, well like, I would how say do you know I, w- what to I would buy? tell people to go to a site called consumerlab.com. I'm a big fan of consumerlab.com. That's an organization that independently tests all kinds of supplements, including probiotics. And so not only does it have research that says if you want, if you're concerned about this condition, here's the right 
brand to take, but they also test these brands to show that they actually contain what's listed on the label. Because we know with any kind of supplements, probiotics or otherwise, they're not regulated the way that prescription drugs are. And so you can't be sure they actually say what's listed on the label. You can't be sure of a lot of things. And so this organization actually does independent testing so you can be uh, more certain that what you're buying is actually a good product and is actually designed for the specific indication. Oh, that's good. Consumer Consumerlab.com. There's a small yearly fee, but it's, I believe, well worth it. Uh, Just give everyone your login info, Robert. (laughs) (laughs) No, but thank you for that. What is the secret to making great toast? Oh, you're just going to go in with the hard-hitting questions. I'm Dan Pashman from The Sporkful. We like to say it's not for foodies, it's for eaters. We use food to learn about culture, history, and science. There was the time we looked into allegations of discrimination at Bon Appetit, or when I spent three years inventing a new pasta shape. It's a complex noodle that you put together. Every episode of The Sporkful, you're going to learn something, feel something, and laugh. The Sporkful from Stitcher. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, changing subjects to something that's slightly a little more relatable that I probably everyone in the audience can think about, like how it will affect them. Milks, like plant milks and versus dairy milk. When I first started Hungry Girl, like almond milk was the most groundbreaking thing in the world. Rice milk was like, ooh, like only two people I knew ever tried rice milk. Any kind of non-dairy milk now there's every kind of milk under the right. sun, macadamia milk, cashew milk, almond milk, oat milk. They're all out there. And so my question around those, what do you feel about them as far as nutrition and as far as potential for weight loss? Let's compare notes on that. Okay. So I would say that for people that can't eat or don't want to consume dairy, they can be a good alternative. But people should not assume that just because it's a plant milk or a non-dairy milk that it's necessarily healthy. I think there's sometimes there's this health halo. You, you talk a lot about health halos, I know. And often there's this health halo over plant milks that people just assume, well, I should get that because it's better. Well, not necessarily. And whether it's better and whether it's good for you really depends on what you're mainly concerned about. Are you concerned about fewer calories? Are you concerned about less saturated fat? Are you concerned about more protein? Are you concerned about uh, sugar, sugar, whatever it is? Mm -hmm. And so what you're concerned about determines which particular milk is best for you. And so, and also remember that within each category, there are different versions. So within almond, there are all kinds of different versions. So I think, you know, we can go through which ones are best if you want to for different uh, different things that you might be interested in. But I think that it's important first to establish what it is that you're most concerned about with regard to your health. And people need to really read those labels. That's Absolutely. what I always say. Because for me, I like using the milks that will add creaminess and flavor for anything I'm having, whether it's coffee, cereal, recipes, but I don't want the sugar. So I always get unsweetened. Yep. And I like the creaminess of a lot of these milks because skim milk, although it has a lot of protein, doesn't have a lot of flavor. Right. So I just think it's about um, reading those labels too. But and, my, and, and as you say, it may depend on what you're using it for. What you use, for example, for your coffee and using a little bit is different than if you're using it for something else, like using a lot more. and using a full yeah. cup or something. So tell me a little bit about I, what I always wonder, and maybe you know the answer to this, oat milk I, to me is far and away the best tasting right. of all of these milks. And it usually, or quite often is the highest in calories and fat. Correct. Where do those calories and fat grams come from? Well, if you look, for example, at extra creamy, 
which is the which is the best tasting. Sure. But it's also the highest in calories. It actually has 160 calories typically, which is even more than whole milk. Yes. They actually add oil to it. So they oh, add things wow. to it to make it creamier. If you look at the label, you see that they add things to it. That's, but it, but the, the ones that shocking. are just the, the the other oat milks, it's just the nature of the product that just tastes creamier, and that's an important factor because you know some of them, as you say, taste more watery, and others taste thicker or what are kind thicker. What do you drink? More. I go for soy, and now some people don't like soy or don't prefer to stay away from soy because they've heard that. Uh, it promotes breast cancer or it, it mimics uh, estrogen and that may result in feminization, character, uh, feminine characteristics in men. Characteristics in men. Uh, that is not true. That research is not, is not, it's not, those are not necessarily valid concerns. Now, people don't like soy or can't tolerate soy for other reasons. As we've discussed, there are plenty of other options. But soy for me is, works because it is relatively high in protein. It has the same amount of protein essentially as dairy milk. Um, and I like the taste. I go for the unsweetened version because that's, it has no added sugar. Um, and, uh, it it just, that's the one I prefer in terms of taste and, and other things that are of interest to me, which is protein primarily. Okay. I'm going to rattle some milks off and you're going to tell me why you like or don't like them. Coconut milk. And I mean like coconut, not the coconut milk in a can that has 9 million (laughs) calories and sugar. So coconut milk, um, the concern there is the saturated fat. If people are concerned about saturated fat, it actually has as much saturated fat as whole milk. Now, not everybody's concerned about saturated fat, I know, but if people are concerned because, for example, they are concerned about their cholesterol, that would be one to avoid. Um, But otherwise, the other issue is it has virtually no protein. So if you want to get protein, that one is near the bottom of the barrel, if not at the bottom of the barrel with regard to protein. What about nut milks? Are they all the same? Like if you do almond, macadamia, or cashew? Okay. So almond, it all depends, again, on which almond you're talking about. So if you're going with unsweetened almond milk, um, that is going to be uh, a good choice because it's very low in calories. It, it and cashew have the lowest calories. So I think you get, what, 25 or 30 calories per serving mm-hmm. in cashew or almond. So if your concern is calorie, that's going to calories those two are going to be your best bet. But again, the un, we're talking about the unsweetened version of almond milk. If you go for the vanilla, you're going to be getting 12 grams of sugar. Unless you get vanilla unsweetened. Unless you get vanilla unsweetened, that's which again, pick. see, that's exactly, right. but if you go for the, so it's easy though for people to say, okay, well, almond milk, that sounds healthy. It's made from nuts. I'm going to get the vanilla. That sounds good. Well, you end up with 12 grams of sugar per serving. That's as much as you get in a serving of Frosted Flakes. So if you pour that milk on your Frosted Flakes, you're doubling the sugar in your Frosted Flakes, which is easy for people to overlook. So again, that's an example of read those labels, as you say, you um, before you make labels. assumptions. Absolutely. Okay, let's move on to a topic that was super hot a few years ago, and I don't know if it's quite as hot, but I know in my world, at least a lot of people say they do this and it helps them for weight loss, and that is grazing. It's the idea that eating small meals throughout the day somehow helps them either lose or maintain weight. Right. And so to be clear here, we're talking about eating every potentially two to three hours Mm -hmm. as as opposed to three meals a day. And Sometimes people confuse that with snacking where you eat three meals a day and snacks in between. This is different where you're just eating a bunch of small meals but throughout the day. But it's kind of the same. Like small yeah. meals are snacks. Yeah. It's funny. Well, <laughs> I think that what 
the, the theory behind this is, is twofold. Number one is it increases metabolism because, you know, when we eat, uh, it takes energy to burn, it takes calories. We, we use energy to digest our food, right? So that the idea is the more often you eat, the higher your greater your metabolism will be. That's uh, the first rationale. The second is it decreases hunger. So if you eat more, you're not going to be as hungry. So the studies actually have failed to show the first, that it actually increases metabolism. Studies have failed to show that it actually boosts metabolism. However, the studies do show that it can decrease hunger. And that's not too surprising. Oh, eating every few hours yes, can decrease hunger. Yes, decreases hunger. So that's, that's not a shocker, exactly. <laughs> the problem is, does that translate into weight loss? And a number of studies, most studies have generally failed to show that it results in weight. And some studies even show I, that it results in weight gain. I think it's human error. Human error. If people are eating every two to three hours and and misunderstanding what a snack is or how many calories they're intaking, right. then they're probably taking in more calories than they would exactly. if they had three meals I think a day. That is, a, that is potentially, you know, one of the main factors here. It's very hard for people to properly, obviously, estimate their calories. And they think, oh, well, it's just a few hundred calories and it may be 500 or 600 calories. But it's also important, obviously, to think about what you're eating. So if you're at the office and your idea of grazing is to eat donuts and candy that's at the office, that's very different than if you're going to be eating eating carrots and fruits and, and other kinds of filling whole foods. And so I think that's a, that's a big factor there too. So I think the bottom line is it really depends on you. It depends on your ability to control portions. It depends on what you're eating. And so I think for certain people, it can work very well. And a lot of people I know swear by this. I think the mistake though is then when this is held up is the answer to weight control. Everybody needs to eat six meals a day instead of three, and that will help you control your weight. And then people try this and find that it fails. Well, again, it's not necessarily the people who fail. It's that this is idea is not right for everybody. It's, it's right for some, but not right for everybody. And it sounds like you're saying that the, basically the calories in versus calories burned, it's the tried and true formula that just, you can't get around, right? Yeah. So if you end up eating six times a day and consume more calories than you would, if you ate three times a day, then clearly it's not going to work. I mean, I would just say that really it boils down to what works for you because there's no set number of times to eat that's ideal. We eat three times a day because that's cultural, but there's nothing biological about eating you know, three times a day. So for some people, they eat once a day and that works for them. They are a fasting diet maybe. Other people can eat six times a day, but really you have to figure out based on your schedule and your personality and your preferences, what's going to work for you. And so I think there's no magical number of times a day to eat biologically speaking, that is optimal. And I know we have had a conversation, not on a podcast, so we can go over this again, but your thoughts on intermittent fasting. I personally have had a lot of success with like eating for a limited number of hours throughout the day. It could just be because I was drastically, you know, decreasing my calorie intake. But what are your thoughts about intermittent fasting? I think for certain people, intermittent fasting can be effective. Studies do show that it's effective for weight loss, but not necessarily more effective than a calorie-restricted diet. But I think for some people, they find that it's easier to follow than just cutting calories. So they find that they they eat, you know, right? They a can have window. right if they can eat the sandwich that they want. Yeah. Instead of just eating a salad or just right. restricting calories, they feel more freedom to eat the foods that satisfy them, but because it's a smaller window, they're taking in fewer calories. Exactly. And so for, and again, it depends on if, if that works for you, that's great. But for other people, they find that they're, you know, if they can't eat beyond certain times, they become more obsessed with food even. So it doesn't work for them. Um, I do, I think one caveat is that some research has shown that when people go on 
uh, intermittent fasting diets, they tend to lose more muscle mass than people who go on a calorie-restricted diet. Why this is, is that? Well, it's unclear. And so I think there needs to be more research to, to figure out whether this is true and if so, why. But that's a, that's a potential caveat. But clearly you want to lose fat. You don't want to lose muscle mass. Right. Well, maybe, I mean, I'm just guessing, maybe if there's no food, like getting into your muscles for like too long of a period of time, your muscles become less muscly. <laughs> that could but, be. Robert, do you want to speak to that? <laughs> I, I am not going to venture a guess on that, but I will say that people just need to be aware of that because okay. obviously the goal, that's a very important point. I mean, if you lose weight and you lose muscle, that's not good. Mm-mm. So, no. um, but, but I think with regard to intermittent fasting, I don't condemn it. I think that it can work for some people and if it does work great, but I don't think that people should assume that again, this is the way and the best way. And if you try it and it fails, then you're a failure because I get back to what I always say, which is that everybody's different and you need to figure out what works for you. And just because something works for someone else or works for somebody on social media doesn't mean it's right for you. I know. And I really personally really don't like how judgy people have become about foods. I mean, because I always have said whatever works for you and it's not one size fits all. And I've noticed in the world of intuitive eating, there's a lot of people that are all the intuitive eaters almost become angry at the people who are counting calories or who are dieting. And if you're an intuitive eater and that works for you, great. Rah, rah, rah. You're a person who maybe you ate French fries every day for a week and now you don't ever want to see a French fry again. I don't know that that works for everybody. I really do want to get your take on intuitive eating. And also for people who don't know what that, what it is, Maybe you can just give a rundown of what it is. Right. Well, it, it has a number of principles and I won't you know, state all of them. I don't even know if I know them all offhand, but I can say that the whole idea behind intuitive eating is to help people break free of diet culture and diet mentality. So the people who have been on diet after diet and lost weight and gained weight and been through this uh, yo-yoing, this weight cycling to break free of all that mentality and, that, and that, all the harmful effects of that. And so the idea here, there are several principles. It's to... Uh, not to starve yourself so you enjoy eating, um, not to deprive yourself, but to enjoy the foods that you want to eat, um, to listen to your body so that you eat when you're hungry and you stop eating when you're full. Um, there are other aspects of it uh, is to help you cope with emotions or tell you that you should, if you're an emotional eater, to deal with those emotions in other ways besides with food. That's a huge one. Yeah. And I'll come and, and I can tell you why. It's that, just that, that, really it's, hard it's to be my, like, oh, by right, the way, right. when you're going to emotionally eat, don't do that. They're uh, they're right. And there are other uh, aspects of it that I find to be quite good to help people feel better about themselves so that they don't judge themselves by their weight and they don't have unrealistic expectations about what they can achieve. Um, They focus on movement for its own sake. So exercise is not a way to lose weight, but it's something to help you feel better emotionally and physically. And um, you focus on healthy food choices. So you try to be as healthy as you can, but not to beat yourself up if you're not perfect. So a lot of those things I would say are very good because we know the dangers, the harms of diet culture, of being on diet. So I think it can be a very good thing, intuitive eating, to help people break free of this mentality, this harmful way of thinking about food and calories and judging yourself about your weight. Now, that said, I think there are some concerns I have. Um, The most important of these is that this concept, which is central to intuitive eating, which is you need to listen to your body for your hunger cues. Sounds good. The problem is that it is a very complicated, this idea of hunger cues is very complex because we have internal hunger cues, we have external hunger cues. And so it says, listen to your internal hunger cues. The problem is it's really hard to 
uh, separate the internal cues from the external cues. And by that, I mean, I'll give you an example of an external cue. Every day in the afternoon, I eat a snack because I think I'm hungry. Well, am I hungry because it's a habit? Am I, do I think I'm hungry because the clock says three o'clock? I don't know. Am I really hungry or not? All I know is that I feel a need to eat a snack every day. And so it's hard for me to disentangle all that, whether I'm truly hungry or whether it's a matter of habit. Likewise, we see food everywhere we go. And that certainly entices us uh, when we see food or we see ads for food. So those are examples of external cues that can make us hungry. And it's hard for us to know whether that's really an internal signal or an external signal. How do we, how do we distinguish between the two? And, and wait, let me add to that. Sometimes an internal signal might be anxiety, frustration, fear, sadness, happiness. All of those things are real. And a lot of people think those emotions make them feel hungry. So right. that also throws a wrench into it. I feel like my feeling intuitive eating is great if it works for you, but I feel like it's a really big psychological commitment. That's like a bigger picture thing that can it fit into your, are you ready for that commitment to be that aware of your behaviors and your feelings and your lifestyle? I don't know. That's I, just me. That's I, what I, I feel. would agree with that. And about emotional eating, you, I would say that this idea that you need to find other ways to deal with the emotions, that is a obviously incredibly complex thing to do. And it's something that people can't just flip a switch and do that. Often it requires professional help, counseling to get to the root of why it is that people use food and how to channel or how to deal with those emotions in other ways besides with the food. So it's not something people often can just do on their own. And so I think intuitive eating sometimes I think gives short, short shrift to the difficulty of that. Yeah. I mean, it's like it, it, it would solve the world's weight, weight, problems in one fell swoop. If people could do that, I think. It's yeah, like, you know, yeah, other right. than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the opera? <laughs> it's like, I don't know. So, so I, my, my bottom line on intuitive eating is I think it can be for certain people, a very good transition away from being stuck in diet culture. The question is, what is it transitioning you to? Because I would say, to, in my view, the key over the long run to achieving and maintaining a healthy weight is learning new habits, lifestyle and health and eating habits. And I'm just not convinced that intuitive eating really focuses on that enough to help people do that. Obviously, doing that is very time consuming. It requires a lot of trial and error, requires figuring out what's right for you. It requires a lot of time and patience. And it's one thing to transition away, which is a good thing potentially from diet mentality, but then to try to get you to where you need to go to this idea of learning new habits and having those ingrained. So eating a new way of eating becomes automatic. That's another matter. And I'm not sure, I'm not convinced that intuitive eating really does a good enough job of helping people actually get there. So I would say that it's a good start to uh, mm -hmm. remove yourself from uh, this from diet mentality. But I think there needs to be more for people to truly achieve a healthy weight long term. I couldn't agree more. Um, and we are running out of time. So I want you to tell people a little bit more about your book and why your book can help them with some of the struggles that they may be facing as far as losing and maintaining weight. Sure. Well, Supersize Lies goes through a lot of the things that people often hear, a lot of the different claims about what's going to help you. And what I try to do is look at the science and help you figure out, is this really true? Is this really believable? And to help people better understand what the science says, and then to point them toward methods that are going to be the most effective. And again, my approach here is not to tell you, this is not a diet prescription book to say, do X, Y, and Z and you'll lose weight. The idea is to direct you toward different things that have been proven to work in the literature so that you can take these 
and try these for yourselves to figure out what are going to work for you. And so the, the, the bottom line is to give you better information about what works and what doesn't work so you can make better decisions for yourself. And I love that. And I feel like when I do read this book, I feel like certain things resonate with me. And I feel like when people read the book, they will see what resonates within themselves and at least have real information to help them. Because the more you know yourself, the easier it will be to stick with whatever plan you come up with. Absolutely. So thank you. And thanks for being here. Will you come back? I would love to. It's always fun to talk to you. (laughs) Great. Thank you, Robert. That was an amazing podcast. And if you guys want to win something, you want to win a copy of one of Robert's books. He has four great books. He will sign them. And we're going to give away, I think, a total of five books. Just text Mikey at 805-380-8075 and just say anything. Say you like the episode, ask Robert a question, let us know what you're thinking, but anyone who texts will be eligible and we will choose the winners at random. And if you enjoyed Robert and you want to check him out, don't forget to look for healthyskeptic.com. That is his, uh, his website and you can find him on social media at Facebook, it's Robert Davis, Healthy Skeptic. And on Instagram, Healthy Skept. That's H-E-L-T-H-Y-S-K-E-P-T. So you can find them everywhere. Don't forget. And don't forget to tune in next time. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Lisa Lillian, also known as Hungry Girl. Till next time, chew the right thing.